Over the past decade, states and school districts nationwide have invested considerable resources and even greater political capital in developing new evaluation systems for teachers that incorporate their impacts on student test scores. These efforts were motivated by evidence that teachers vary widely in their effectiveness in raising student achievement and that these differences matter for students' long-term success. But does a narrow focus on test score impacts miss other ways in which teachers influence their students' long-term outcomes? And is it possible to use other forms of data to offer a more complete picture of how teachers matter? I'm Marty West, Editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Kirabo Jackson, Professor of Human Development and Social Policy at Northwestern University, and the author of the new article, The Full Measure of a Teacher, Using Value Added to Assess Student Effects on Behavior, that will appear in the winter 2019 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Bo, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Thank you so much, Marty, for the introduction, and thanks for having me. So this is a really ambitious study that, as I see it, lies at the intersection of two big strands of recent education policy research. The first is the work documenting just how much effectiveness varies across individual teachers, and in some cases linking those differences to student outcomes later in life. And then the second strand of research is all this evidence that skills not captured by test scores, whether we call them non-cognitive, social, emotional, or something else, are equally, if not more important than test scores for students' long-term success. So in a nutshell, you're asking whether individual teachers also differ in their effectiveness in improving non-tested skills. I wonder if you could start out by telling us what kinds of skills you had in mind when asking this question and, and then how you went about measuring them. Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great summary of exactly how I think about it. So in terms of the skills that I was that I sort of had in mind, I didn't really know, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I I'm sort of I was familiar with the research documenting that if you sort of just tried to predict how well someone does in adulthood as a function of their test scores and say things like whether they per- participate in extracurricular activities um, or whether they tended to show up to school on time, those other kinds of behaviors tended to predict long-run outcomes quite a bit. Um, So it suggested, at least to me, that there's some underlying skill or some underlying practices or competencies that are reflected in sort of better behaviors that may not be reflected in test scores. And there's some evidence out there um, that have use sort of the psychometric measures of non-cognitive skills. Those are survey-based measures from psychology documenting that students who are higher in things like grit, for example, are more likely to work hard and show up to class on time. And you'd expect that a student who is grittier would be more likely to have good attendance rates. They'll be more likely to hand in their homework on time, which will be reflected in a higher GPA, even if their test scores are sort of similar to another kid, the one who's going to turn in their homework on time and show up and participate and do extra credit activities. Those are the kids who are going to have higher GPAs, even if they have similar test scores, and that would be reflective of underlying levels of grit or academic motivation or academic engagement. So those are the kinds of skills I had in mind, um, but I didn't really know necessarily any what specific skills were involved, but I had a pretty good sense that there's a whole host of skills that are reflected in improved behavior, improved behaviors that are not necessarily well captured by test scores. And to some extent, you can be agnostic about what exactly it is that, uh, uh, what skills you have in mind, because you're using behaviors to try and infer how students are developing in ways not captured by test scores. So talk a little bit about your measurement approach. That is exactly right. So 
for example, as I already mentioned, GPA, you know, sometimes you might think of GPA as being a cognitive measure. Um, but for sure, GPA does reflect some cognitive skills. So a student who knows mathematics will probably do very well on the mathematics exams and, and, and do well from that dimension. But also the kid who participates in class, some components of the course grades that a student receives is going to reflect process. So kids who are participating in class, who are engaging in classroom conversations, contributing positively to the classroom, are likely to have higher grades as a result of that, even if their test scores are the same. Um, we know that that is probably going to be somewhat reflective of them having stronger social-emotional skills, like being more pro-social, for example, um, being more academically engaged. Um, but GPA is also going to capture things like motivation, like I already said. The kid who, who turns in more extra, extra credit assignments is going to have uh, a higher GPA. So you can imagine that something like grades uh, is going to reflect a combination of skills, both cognitive and also non-cognitive. So um, GPA yeah. is one of the things that you're going to use as a measure of student behavior. What are the uh, other components of your measure? That's right. So the measure that I use uh, combines grades, uh, retention, whether a student ends up repeating a grade, essentially. Uh, I also include whether they were, had, had any disciplinary uh, infractions, whether they were suspended, and also their attendance. So all these four things are all four behaviors, essentially, that reflect students' underlying skills, or should I say underlying motivation and skills in ways that are not necessarily well reflected by test scores. And the basic idea is that if you see a kid uh, who is likely to show up to class on time, they're not acting out in class, um, they're participating well, and they're not getting in trouble, you can sort of infer that that kid has high levels of academic engagement, that kid probably has higher levels of motivation, and they're probably relatively well adjusted. Conversely, when you see a kid on average who's doing poorly on those dimensions, you can infer that there may be something else going on and they may have lower levels of academic engagement, lower levels of motivation, and be less well adjusted. And so much in the same way you use test scores to infer someone's level of cognitive ability, you can use uh, these behaviors to infer someone's level of underlying non-cognitive skills. Even if you don't know specifically what they are, you can infer they have higher levels of those skills that are reflected in those behaviors. And where did the data on these behaviors come from? So the data I used came from uh, North Carolina. It's from the North Carolina Education Data Warehouse. Uh, they have in, basically have individual data for students and teachers, students linked to teachers and the courses they take, and a whole bunch of administrative uh, outcomes like test scores, grades, attendance, etc. And I was able to link not only students' outcomes when they're in the classroom with a teacher, but I also look at their longer run outcomes, such as whether they graduate from high school um, or have intentions to attend college. And so the first question you use these data to ask is, just how predictive this measure of student behavior in the ninth grade, we should say, is of student success later in high school and, and how its predictive power compares to that of the state tests that they also participate in as ninth graders. So, so what do you find there? That's exactly right. So oftentimes, one of the justifications for using test scores as a measure of educational quality is the fact that test scores are predictive of success later on in life. So I just was curious about whether what if we use these other measures, um, grades, retention, attendance, discipline, to predict long-run outcomes, what would you see there? And the finding was, was kind of surprising. So the first thing that sort of jumped out at me was if you just predict outcomes using both test scores and these behaviors, the behaviors were actually much more predictive of whether someone ended up graduating from high school and having intentions to go to college. 
and actually using other data, I used survey data from the National Education Longitudinal Survey um, to look at long run outcomes. And I actually found that the same, I found exactly the same pattern there. Um, in those nationally representative survey data, uh, these behaviors were much more predictive of whether of, of earnings, whether they went to college, the quality of the college they went to as well. And then the second question you ask is whether teachers who are better at raising student test scores are also better at improving this measure of student behavior. Why is that an important fact to establish? Yeah, so it's important to establish whether they're the same teachers or not. So you can imagine a world in which uh, ability is kind of a single dimensional thing. You're either high ability or low ability, or I should say high skilled or low skilled. And in such a world, every kid who is basically doing well in terms of attendance and uh, discipline also have high test scores. Um, and every kid who has low test scores also is doing not so well on these behaviors. But it turns out that's not the way the world works. One of the things that surprised me just looking at the data for students was that there are many students who have high test scores who are not doing very well in terms of discipline and, uh, and grades. And there are also many students who have very high GPAs. They're not getting in trouble. They have very high attendance, but their test scores are relatively are middling. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of variation there in the data, and there's no one individual kind of student. So it makes sense that it's possible that there are teachers who might improve test scores who may not necessarily improve these behaviors. And the reason this is important is that if it were the case, that the same teachers who raised test scores were also the same teachers who improved these behaviors, then if you wanted to identify excellent teachers, you wouldn't actually have to measure their impacts on behaviors. You could just use their impacts on test scores. Because if it's the same teachers, having information about their impacts on, say, GPA would not tell, give you any additional information. However, if there are different sets of teachers, then that's a completely different story. Knowing a teacher's impact on test scores may give you relatively little information about that teacher's impact on behaviors, and that's basically what I find in the data. Um, the two teacher's impacts on one type of skill uh, is basically gives very little indication of what their impacts on the other dimension of skill might be. I think it's important to note that you don't find that these two dimensions of teacher effectiveness, you might call them, are negatively correlated with one another, right? It's not that if you're better at raising test scores, you're less effective in improving student behavior, which I think would have one set of implications. You find that they're positively correlated, but, but only modestly, right? That's exactly right. So uh, the finding is not that they are negatively correlated. So it is not the case that if you find a teacher who's good at raising test scores, that that teacher is necessarily bad at improving behaviors. That is not the case. Um, so the correlation is slightly positive. So in general, teachers who are good at raising test scores uh, tend to be slightly better at raising behaviors and vice versa but there's a lot of information on, in the teacher's impact on behaviors that is just not detected by their effects on test scores and vice versa. And so this idea that there are some teachers that are more effective in one dimension, some that are more effective on the other, sets up the final question that you ask in the paper, which is which of these two dimensions of teacher effectiveness is more important for students' long-term success, or at least in your study, their success at the end of high school. One way I thought about this is that if I'm a parent, should I want my student to be placed with a teacher who ranks higher in terms of her value added to test scores or in terms of her value added to, to student behavior? And the answer seems to be that it's not even a close call, right? That's correct. This is one of the surprising results. Um, so it's absolutely the case that teachers who raise test scores are also teachers who tend to increase the likelihood that a child will graduate, will graduate high school and have intentions to attend college. Um, it's also true 
that uh, teachers who improve behaviors are more likely to get students to graduate from high school and more likely to say they're going to attend college. But the impacts are much, much, much larger for those teachers that raise uh, that improve behaviors and teachers who raise test scores. So if you had to choose between having an, a teacher who was average at raising test scores but excellent at improving behaviors versus one that was average at raising behaviors and excellent at raising test scores, um, it's not even a close call. The, you, the, the impacts on high school graduation are much, much, much larger for a teacher who's average at raising test scores but excellent at improving behaviors. Okay, so let's talk about the implications of these findings. Over the past decade, as I mentioned earlier, we've seen a massive effort on the part of policymakers to develop new systems of teacher evaluation that incorporate student test scores in a significant way. And you argue, actually, that test score impacts are an important gauge of teacher effectiveness and should continue to be part of teacher evaluation systems. Given the findings we've just discussed, I think some listeners may find that surprising. Why do you have that view? So there, there are two things to say. So one, one of the caveats of the study is that, you know, I'm not able to observe all outcomes later on in the future. So it, it is certainly possible, and there is evidence to document this, that teachers who raise test scores also have important impacts on earnings. Um, so it's entirely possible that if we were to look at uh, individuals' earnings later on, that test score impacts are equally import, equ as important as impacts on behavior. So uh, I don't want to sort of read too much into the findings and sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. But certainly within the context of the outcomes that I analyze, it does appear that behaviors are much more predictive. And, and the main takeaway then is that test score impacts, even when they are available, and we should note they're only available for a subset of, of teachers, are incomplete. And that teacher evaluations really do need to incorporate a broader set of measures what would this look like? Should we simply incorporate the kinds of value added to student behavior measures that you used in your analysis? So that's, that's a really good question. So, the, so one of the potential problems of using any measure uh, for and attaching stakes to it, as would be the case for accountability or evaluation, is the potential for gaming. That is, people may, it basically provides incentives for teachers or administrators to distort those measures in order to benefit from having improved uh, on, these, on these measures. So in the case of test scores, we, we do have evidence of that happening there as well. So we know that there has been cheating, say, like in DC schools and some evidence of that in New York City as well. So when you start attaching states to test scores, you may have more cheating. Um, I would argue that some of the measures that I use in this study are very susceptible to that kind of gaming. For example, if all of a sudden teachers were being uh, given bonuses based on their students' course grades, it would be very easy for teachers to essentially assign every student an A. And that would be a very easy way to increase uh, GPA for their kids, but they wouldn't actually be doing it uh, by improving their underlying skills. So that would be a problem. So a way, there are ways around that, uh, that are some of which are more practical than others. So one way around that, would be to try to observe the kinds of behaviors that are correlated or associated with improvements in these behaviors and then provide incentives for teachers to engage in those behaviors as opposed to attaching stakes to the outcomes themselves. So it we try and figure out what practices are associated with effectiveness on this second dimension precisely. and try and uh, either reward those behaviors or presumably use them as the basis for professional development. Right? Exactly, exactly. So, you know, I don't think every measure needs to be used in a punitive fashion. I think we can use them for evaluative purposes as well. And I think it's certainly possible to use these measures, identify teachers who are 
effective at raising the or improving these behaviors, figure out what they're doing in the classroom to generate those behaviors and try to promote those behaviors either through professional uh, development or through attaching some stakes to it. That's exactly right. Um, other possible things one could do, um, this one is probably one of the less uh, feasible things, but one could in principle attach stakes to these behaviors in say a follow-up year. The idea there would be uh, instead of rewarding teachers for how well her students do, his or her students do, in terms of behaviors in the current year when they're with the teacher, you can say, well, I'm going to reward this teacher if her or his or her outcomes are improved the following year. So you look at the outcomes of her students the following year when she's when those students are no longer in the classroom with that teacher. Um, so the teacher can no longer distort behaviors by increasing, by increasing grades, but if her students are earning higher grades in, in the following year, say in 10th grade, then it would imply that the teacher was actually doing something that was productive. That's another thing one could do. I think that might be politically difficult, but it's one way to get around some of these gaming problems. Sounds a little too technocratic for uh, public consumption, maybe. So let's go back to the uh, observation approach, uh, the idea of trying to learn about the practices that are most effective. Uh, in enhancing student behavior. Uh, obviously, teacher evaluation systems now generally do include classroom observations, uh, and we've often thought about trying to validate those as useful indicators of teacher performance by comparing them to value added to test scores. It seems like you're suggesting that actually we wanna think about the observation components of evaluation systems a bit differently, not try to identify those uh, teacher practices that are effective in raising student test scores because we can study that directly. We should think about the unique value added of observations is to try and find those practices that are useful over and above what you're doing with respect to test scores. Is that a, that's, a that's, useful that's, way to think about That's it? exactly right. You know, I, I think that, you know, if we take a sort of a broader view about what education is about and what, uh, what a teacher is supposed to do, what teachers are there to promote the broad set of skills um, in, their, in, her, in his or her students that will make them productive members of society. Some of those skills are well measured by test scores and some of them are not. So if we're going to try and identify those classroom practices through observations or through survey measures given to students uh, or principals, um, I think the, the, we should sort of keep in mind that we should validate our, our benchmark for success should not be whether that teacher is improving test scores, the benchmark for success should be whether that teacher is promote, promoting the sets of skills that are imp important for success later on in life. So I think a very simple takeaway from this might be we should stop benchmarking observations on test scores and perhaps we should benchmark uh, observations based on these behaviors or even if you have the data to do it um, with, with, with enough time, one could imagine benchmarking these behaviors on outcomes way later on in life. So for example, many children who were in ninth grade several years ago would now potentially be in college. You can imagine identi identifying those classroom practices that are associated with getting kids to graduate high school and go to college. And those might be the practices that we privilege as being the things we want to promote as opposed to ones that are raising test scores per se. My guest today has been Kiribo Jackson, professor of human development and social policy at Northwestern University and the author of The Full Measure of a Teacher available now at educationnext.org. Bo, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the EdNext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to check out our archive and, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review.
It helps us find more listeners and more listeners find us.